We're back. The Whiskey Hue. America calls Anthony Black and also Anthony Brown, which leaves Athul as the guy in the confusing middle. We're brothers, various shades of brown, bringing you the latest in tech, business, and startups mixed with a ton of sarcasm. Cue the music. All right, Dr. Bunsley, you're allowed to sing here if you like. Sing, dance, whatever you like to do. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is a part of the Whiskey Hue, part of the Prof P Health Series, and it's a second edition. We had done one on mental health a couple uh, weeks back, and now we're doing one more on neuromuscular diseases, and we have an expert in the house tonight. So this is these are tips to help us create and curate a more fulfilling life of value, uh, and, and that's why we're going to continue doing some of these health series among our other episodes, which are the typical investing in tech conversations. All right. So what we're going to do is today we'll get into an acute conversation which affected my family, the Prosher family, how we ended up at Javon B. Hospital in Rockford, Illinois, and then a broader scope of ALS neurology, uh, which is what my mom had and which is what we came to know actually in the hospital at the time. And then where we, you know, where we are from a clinician's vantage point taking on this disease. And we have an expert with us today, Dr. Vibov Bunsel, who will help us kind of guide this conversation. So in, in summary, we'll discuss our personal journey, as well as Dr. Bunsel's deep understanding and experience with this subject matter to help us improve the lives of our listeners. That's what we want you to do because you know, the stats are alarming. It's out there, right? I think over age 65, I think it was one in, Dr. Bunsen, you can tell me the proper status. So the incidence is about, uh, so they, the prevalence is five per 100,000 and the incidence is two per 100,000. Um, but the most common age group is definitely between the ages of 60 and 75 years. Right. And it, and we're going to get into just how you can do everything right, but this is a scary kind of a fiction. Um, and I'll tell you one thing. So ALS is something I had heard about as a child when I was around my son's age, fifth or sixth grade, I think I was writing a book report about Lou Gehrig's disease as ALS is popularly known in the U.S. Uh, never thinking much of it at that young age and now knowing that it would deeply and not knowing that it would deeply affect one of the pillars of my life, my mom. Um, I would like to give a special shout out as we jump into a Dr. Bunsell here. Um, he's very well credentialed, but I, another shout out I'll give is Dr. Shavastava. He was deeply involved with my mom's case and his wife and my mom were best friends and they're still in Rockford. We grew up together. I grew up with their kids. We all know each other well. We sent each other just you know wonderful messages to get us through all these kind of terrible times we've had to kind of go through in the last few years. They're dear family friends of ours. Dr. Shavasta went above and beyond to give us just even one more week with my mom. And my Mossy and I were in the hospital with my mom probably, you know, 10, 12, 15 hours a day, as, as, as much as they would allow. <laughs> the hospitals would allow. We were there, and that was beautiful to get those extra 10 to 14 um Ten, seven to eight days with my mom because against all odds, he, he tried a different type of treatment and my mom's body did not respond. Uh, but we, and for, and for reasons we'll delve into during this uh, conversation. Um, but I will, let me just give a tee up to our, to Dr. Bunsell, who's with us today. He serves as the Neurointervention Medical Director at Javon Bay Hospital at Riverside, which is in Rockford, Illinois, the town that I was born and raised in. I was born at a neighboring hospital, and, and then I 
I left. So I'm wondering why you're still there. I'm, just kidding. I'm kidding. It's a great city. Uh, a lot of great people came from that city. So you went to clear, clean up any of this. So this I did a Google search and you are all over the web. You do some incredible things, which I'll, I'll mention here as well. So Cincinnati Medical School, University of Illinois, Chicago, you did residency, Michigan State Fellowship, DePaul University for a law degree and accompanying all the, the MD, which is, you know, we're Desi. Uh, we have a lot of MDs, JDs, and now when I move to the East Coast, there's a lot of finance people in our lives. And um, you're a Midwest guy, it looks like, and uh, we're going to get into that. Uh, you have several videos posted across the internet. You're a rock star there. Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, in Rockford. Me, a rock star in Rockford, so it's no, no, a very no. limited. Uh, we're going to change that. We have billions. We have 18 billion listeners. I know there's only 7 billion people on the planet, but you know, I'm kidding. Uh, but <laughs> So you're a rock star. We had met your team prior to you coming in. So we were, you know, and they were incredible. Everyone on your team, I have to say, you know, just, um, and they kept raving about you, your experience, your depth of knowledge. Your knowledge and thoughts are well documented across TV, internet, as I mentioned. So please Google Dr. Vidla Bunsel to see some of his work and to get a sense of his impact on his patients, hospital, and more broadly, just society. Now, I will give take it an extra step. We had many, many clinicians in the room at a hospital prior to shifting my mom to your hospital, and both. I'm not. Everyone was great. My wife and I just sat there. My wife and I, we were in awe, and my entire family of your, just the way you showed up. You were empathetic to all of us. Look, you, you didn't need to, you gave us time. We were rocking against the clock uh, in my mom's case, and you gave us so much, kind of, you gave us as much leeway as clinically possible, and we greatly appreciate that, plus comforting us, because it's easy to come in and just kind of be blunt. This is the circumstance, and this is the outcome, most likely. But you worked with us. There's a lot of gray area where we needed that empathy because this was, you know, and I'll get into this later. It was 20 months after losing my father. We weren't ready for another episode like this. And we were still grieving my father and then my mother all of a sudden. And take it from there. Fill in the blanks. And then I'll get into kind of the acute destination of how we ended up at your hospital. But please fill in the blanks. I know your background is phenomenal. So what else have you done so they can kind of, our audience can find you and what are, you know, what you're doing at Javon Bay. And please correct my pronunciation of that. Javon Bay. No, yeah, it's Javon Bay. You know, I've been here for five years. Uh, we uh, have a very large stroke program that, you know, we're very proud of, as well as a very large uh, neurology program where, as you know, we get regional transfers throughout the area. Um, that was kind of our goal when we came to Rockford. My goal when we came to Rockford was to build a, a large neuroscientist program that, you know, Rockford was missing at that time. So, you know, that's something we really take pride in and really proud of. Okay, nice. And then, so you've been in this role, in that particular role for five years, and that's how you joined? Yeah, just over five years. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay, and then uh, Midwest, you've you've been all over the Midwest as far as schooling and all education and now employment. So why is that? Yeah, I'm just curious. Uh, you know, we, I, my parents first immigrated from India. They landed in Chicago. But okay. then uh, my dad's first job, he's a physician as well, actually a neurologist um, who kind of, you know, inspired myself and my sister uh, to both be neurologists as well. And so we moved to Kentucky. So we're actually, I was born in, uh, you know, I grew up, I'm sorry, I was born in Chicago, but grew up in Kentucky in a small town called Ashland, Kentucky. Our claim to fame is it's the hometown of Charles Manson and Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which one's more evil. I'm kidding. Billy yeah, Ray Cyrus I know, right? great things. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> So, yeah, I grew up there um, and then ultimately went to college at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. It was a Jesuit school. Um, actually, I went there because my parents didn't trust me to go 
anywhere by myself. So my sister was a couple years senior to me, so they wanted her to watch me. <laughs> so that's why I got stuck there. And, um, that's yeah. so funny. So, and you mentioned yeah. she's in neurology as well, your sister. Yes, she is. So you, the entire family is. Okay, that's, that's yeah, amazing. That's amazing. Yes. Okay, great. And you can t- let's tell the world, because we're a dying breed, Punjabis. Uh, you're from Punjab. Your wife is as well. Let's give it to the world, because we're a dying breed. I, I, you oh, don't yeah. meet too many of us anymore. <laughs> no, I know, right? <laughs> I had a dear family friend from Rockford, Illinois. He's, his name was Bunsel as well, and he was at my mom's funeral, but uh, they were not Punjabi. So it was. I was alarmed to, hey, I didn't know. And then I asked my Masi and my uncle that day, you, who know you well, you know them well. And they said, yeah, Bunsels are common just in North India, I guess. Yeah, I guess they're really common in like the state of like Rajasthan or UP, is yeah. from what I understand as well. Yeah. I don't actually know any other Bunsels in the U.S. aside from like my family. Oh, really? Okay, there's one that yeah. grew up in Rockford with me. Uh, That's friend crazy. Of mine, one year older than I was. Yeah, uh, awesome, awesome. So let's get to let's get in delve in deep. So I'll tell you how we ended up. So my mom, just a quick thing. I remember I mentioned. Um, it was December 2021, my father had passed. We were trying to figure out what was going on with mom. ALS is a very difficult diagnosis uh, to come across. I mean, it's, it, there's so many different things involved there, and it's kind of sometimes, you correct me where I'm wrong here, sometimes the diagnosis of last resort, they try to pinpoint other things, and they think it is. Many clinicians thought it was something else as we were going through. December 2021, my father passed, uh, and that was that was hell for us. It was just a shocking to us all. It shocked us all, and then... I'll run through this. We did this in episode 72 where each of the co-hosts had lost a parent at the time. So we just did a nice ode to our parents and then walked through just, you know, celebrating their lives. And then so we fast forward to there. My wife and I and the kids, we stayed for four or five weeks after that up up until into January. And we came back 2022. Um, We thought, so my mom, from a patient's and family's perspective, we want to get into all of this. Uh, We thought my mom was suffering from, like she had other health ailments prior to that. And she had had open heart surgery actually three years prior in 2020 of, you know, I think April 2020. And that was her second one. Ten years prior, she had one before that. So I'm going to ask you about all of that as well. So these are all things, you know, after my mom's, my father passed, my mom wanted to stay in Rockford for a short period of time before she came to my brother or I, which is completely get it. My Mossy's there. That's her dearest uh, sibling uh, alongside uh, another dear sibling in India that she's very fond of. Um and where my Masi is right now, hanging out with. And so we, she stayed there with my my Masi, my uncle, there for quite some time. And they were just, they're like a second set of parents to me. You've met them several times. That, yes, those yeah, years. absolutely. And, you know, it made sense because we had, they've had, they had lived there for 50 plus years. Home was there. And then I was born, grew up there. Uh, so they had the familiar and friends to stop by and everyone to kind of guide them through this. August 2022, we, we stayed in touch. We saw her and then, you know, we came in all the time. We loved, she came to us. And she was with us for the entire fall. We loved our time with her. My wife and, and kids enjoyed our further bonding with her. But we noticed she was a bit weaker. She had begun hunching over, leaning over a bit more. It's pronounced. And she complained of neck and back pain at that time. So this is 2022, let's say August, right? Uh, and then, so we then took her to see my, she got a full diagnosis right up with where my wife got her into New York Presbyterian. They squeezed her in. It was, an, you know, there was really no room for her. They were so kind to get us in, did a full kind of, testing scenario, um, short of like specific diseases, but they said, okay, you know, try this physical therapy and then let's come back and get you in with some other kind of specialists. So physical therapy for the back and neck, we took her to that two, three times a week, took her to a senior center in my area. She was able to interact with a lot of other uh, people her age. I think that was nice for her to be out, you know, a, she loved being with us, but then was, we loved having her, but then she got to pee with people herself. But we did notice kind of a slowly, slow degradation in her posture and then her ability to kind of walk, but we would push her. We were always against 
her sitting idle, we wanted to push her, go exercise, go walk and all of these things. Now, November, we move back. To, we go back to Rockford. We sold our child at home. It was just too much house for her. We needed, she thought she could live alone. She wanted that independence. I get it. My wife and I, having lived with her for those few, those few months at the time, uh, knew she could not. So we thought at the end of the day, she wanted independence. She was fighting us on that. We'll buy her a small place, a condo. She can step into it two times a year. She says she has it and she can live with my brother and I uh, and our families. Our families are all completely open to this. We went to India in December 2022. She stayed, we stayed for a few weeks and she, my mom stayed with her dear brother Deepak Mamu for an extra four or five weeks. It's colder there where we're from. Dr. Bunsel and I, it's, you know, a little bit for five, six weeks a year, it gets kind of cold and the homes are built for summer because, you know, the rest of the year it's pretty warm. Uh, so the poor air quality plus the cooler weather her health and her ability to just to walk around was severely dampered. Uh, so then my, she came back to Michigan. She was with my brother and that my, and they watched and they kind of took her to a lot of clinicians and said, this is what's going on. She's kind of having a hard time breathing. The immediate diagnosis after some trial and error was pulmonary fibrosis. That's what the pulmonologist came up because she had a hardening. They said, which is a hardening of the sacs. And you can clean up any of this, the hardening of the air sacs around the lung, making it more difficult to breathe and hold longer breaths. Correct. That's exactly. Okay. And then, so that's what we thought she had. Uh, and then they said, but you know what? Follow up with a neurologist and all that. We just couldn't get an appointment with a neurologist at, in in Michigan, I think. That's what it was as, you know, by the time we got there. And then we were all together July 4th. After that, she was going to go back to Rockford for a short stint before coming back to us. And she was going to be with us, you know, from August until definitely through the holidays right now. So we're missing her dearly right now. And while she was in August, this is where it becomes acute. This is where Dr. Bunsell gets involved here. She had shortness of breathing and and just heavy, heavy lethargy. What we came to know later is, you know, shallow breaths. You're taking in more oxygen. You're not, you're taking oxygen very shallowly, but you're, you're holding out, you're holding in more. There's CO2 buildup in your body because you're not expelling that because of the shallow breathing. And she, so there's CO2 buildup that causes all kinds of brain fogs. You'll get into the clinical issues around this and she was having the inability to eat properly, walk properly, energy to do anything, even take her vitamins and medicines. She just couldn't do it. So it came to the point, she, she meant to my mom, said, call an, amb- call an ambulance, I can't do this. We get there, we still had no idea of ALS at this point. We thought it was pulmonary fibrosis that was acting up in a, or whatever it was. We just needed there was something more lingering and we had to figure that out. That's where we get to a hospital in local Rockford. Um, at that place, they did not have EM, the EMG uh, machine to kind of, get, that's a that's a machine that, you know, test your, they kind of prick your, I think your nerves, right? And then they can find out what yeah, you react it to. it tests the integrity of the nerves and the muscles to see if they're working right or not. And it's very difficult to, and you do that outpatient because typically you can't do it inpatient because they're sedated or whatever. They're on some sort they're of thing. They're sedated and, and then there's like electrical interference because it's like, it's like an exactly. electrical machine. So any, all the electricity stuff that's going on within the hospital with, especially within the ICU setting, all the other machines that are running makes it virtually impossible to get a very good exam, a very good ENG nerve conduction study on the person. And Dr. Shavasto, who I mentioned earlier, he had done these, but he was retired by, at the time, so he couldn't really get a hold of the machine. But what we thought in the meantime is we could begin this treatment because he had done one a few years back. And Dr. Jacob at the other hospital was phenomenal. Special shout out to him because he was as you know empathetic as you and he was just so great to work with. And then we get to your hospital. We thought, okay, we can begin this uh, treatment for MGs, plasma, um, plasma right? It's called or plasma exchange. 
Yeah, because initially, you know, uh, ALS is what you had mentioned. It's, it's, it's almost like a diagnosis of exclusion, right? So you want to rule out everything else that it could possibly be, especially anything that's treatable, right? Because unfortunately, um, ALS is incurable disease. It's a progressive neurologic disease that only gets worse over time. And ultimately, patients die from that. So the hope is that it's anything besides that. And so yeah. one of the diseases that's in the differential diagnosis or one of the things that can mimic um, ALS is myasthenia gravis. Right. And myasthenia gravis, it technically means a feeling of heaviness, maya, meaning muscle, M-Y-A, sthenia, feeling or sensation, uh, and he- gravis meaning heavy, so heavy muscle feeling. So basically people feel like their muscles are heavy or they're weak. That disease tends to kind of get worse as the day goes on. It's, it's a disease of fatigability. In other words, as the day goes on, your symptoms get more and more pronounced. Mm. Uh, people's eyelids start to droop as the day goes on. People's voice starts to become softer and softer as the day goes on. People's arms and legs become weaker. They have problems going up the stairs at night versus during the daytime. Just mm. So it's that sort of disease. And they can, in a very fulminant situation that your mom was in, actually present with respiratory or, uh, or compromise. So in other words, like you had mentioned, your mom wasn't able to breathe out that carbon dioxide. And so basically that carbon dioxide builds up in the person's body, which ends up causing the brain to be very confused. You get what we call encephalopathic or delirium, delirious. And you can also get very, very sleepy as well. And so that's kind of how your mom presented. And she ultimately ended up obviously needing to be intubated. Right. Um, the blood tests for the myasthenia, you have to send those out. Only very certain small, right. certain labs uh, have those. So we sent all of those out, but we didn't want to wait, obviously, for, for those lab results to come back because that could take up to seven to ten days. And so what we want to do is go ahead and we say empirically treat her. We treat her for what we think, what's the condition that could be treatable. Right. And in this, her, your mom's case, it was myasthenia. And the most aggressive treatment for that in the acute setting is uh, to do plasmapheresis, which is basically a, uh, basically a dialysis where this dialysis machine clears out the proteins or the antibodies that causes myasthenia. Um, and it kind of gives you a new fresh protein. So it kind of gets rid of like the causative issue. Um, so that's why your mom was ultimately transferred to us out of concern that she may have that. And so, you know, obviously we underwent through the 10 treatments with your mom for the myth- for the plasmapheresis with the presumptuous, presumptuous diagnosis or presumed diagnosis. Um, and it was around that time on the 10-day mark that we got the lab results back. Right. So we sent a comprehensive panel of labs for myasthenia, all of which unfortunately came back un- negative or they were not present. Right. And I say unfortunately because, you know, had they been positive, had she had those antibodies, then we know she has a treatable condition. And that treatable condition is MG, as it's come to know, and just for the non-clinician folks like myself who we need a shorter word, my sure, standard yeah. graphics, right? So that rehab, we were hoping for that. As you said, that was the treatable uh, uh, play here. Now, that rehab would have been incredibly difficult for my mom as well. We knew, okay, you're going to be in a center, a rehab center, partic- you know, because they have to, you have to learn to, first you have to get the treatments and then you have to learn to kind of breathe and walk again and they push you further and further kind of every day uh, and then eating would have been a thing. There would have been other issues, you know, eating the tracheostomy. Yeah, and just being down, right? Being in the ICU, not moving, not moving around that much in the ICU for an older person for 10 days is a lot. Your muscles start to break down. Yes. Patients even who don't have a neuromuscular disease, if they stay in the ICU long enough, 
you can actually get something that we call a critical illness neuropathy or myopathy or weakness because of just the critical illnesses that people have and their sedentariness in those units. And so, so you're compounding that to a disease of weakness, which makes it even a, a longer struggle and battle. And then the intubation, you know, uh, we'll get into yeah. the DNIs and all that for folks for folks who just maybe want to listen. I want to, our listeners to just walk away understanding what this is, what they're dealing with as a family and for the patient, most importantly, obviously. And then what are some maybe things that they can kind of do to, to preemptively look into for their families as well? Uh, we didn't have any of those things in place, like a DNI, but... I'm glad we did not the DNI in my mom's case. Literally, I came back from a wedding, my buddy's wedding up in Cape Cod. My mossy said, hey, we were in the hospital. Then all of a sudden that late Monday night, they said she stopped breathing, so we had to intubate her. If we had the DNI in place, we would have been done at that moment. Uh, you know, So we're happy as a family we did not because it gave us a shot to then try MG because if it was MG, we would have had our mother still, uh, right? And it's 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 tough, but okay, we'll, we'll delve into that in a moment. So these... How did these things, the scary thing about these diseases, we came to, I was Googling left and right. You would come in and drop some terms. All, all the clinicians, your staff your, would drop some terms. My wife knew a lot of these terms. We would, uh, we, my cousin Jyotika, she knew, she knows a lot. She was on the East Coast. We would call her. Uh, she's a clinician. So we would get some info. This, this, the thing that scares me about this, you can make poor life choices. Let's say there's some vice you have, whatever it is. And you put yourself in, you put your body at risk and you put yourself at risk. There's nothing that you can do. This can come on its own, right? It can hit people between 40 and 70, but as we mentioned earlier, 65 and up are more likely, I think, uh, and generally hits men more than women. Um, yeah, it hits men like one and a half times more commonly than women, correct. And the, you can't do anything to mitigate this. You can live a healthy life, eat everything, eat properly, exercise properly. That's what scares the hell out of me because I'm thinking all the other poor life choices maybe we've made, I've made, uh, I'm trying to mitigate those as I get older. I'm in my 40s now and you're trying to eat better. You're trying to exercise better because you want to be around for your kids and help help them flourish and see them flourish. Um, but this is something that's scary that you can't mitigate. There's no marker even, genetic marker really, right? Uh, there's some genetic marker, but only in about 10% of patients yeah. uh, is it. They're like an actual like genetic component where multiple relatives will have it. But barring on most patients, it's what we call just a somatic mutation, or basically, it's just a terrible thing that just happens and nobody can predict it, like you said. And none of these, none of these. Am I? I'm terming these uh, neuromuscular. Uh, is that what we can call these? ALS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Yeah, neurodegenerative. So there's not, and none of them have any kind of precursor. I think Parkinson's or one of them has uh, some sort of genetic marker. Yeah, a lot of them have like we're a small subset of the population of patients who have the disease have a genetic component to it. But for the majority of patients, there's really no, nothing. You're, you are correct. So what, I mean, uh, t take us on the path then. So you've got into this space to... Uh, where are we clinically? Like I know you're, there's always tests they're pushing for. I know they can do some things to kind of mitigate the symptoms in some cases and, you know, um, take that for a bit. Yeah. So, you know, so just even understanding the how, what exactly ALS is, right? ALS is a disease that, you know, affects what we say the, the motor neurons. Neurons are basically the nerve cells in the brain and in the spinal cord. And we believe that there's an abnormal buildup of protein that normally the body eats up, right? But in mm. patients who have ALS, the body's not able to eat up that protein anymore. Mm. So when where that protein accumulates in the motor cells, it becomes toxic to it, right? That protein's not healthy for those cells. So it ends up basically killing those cells. 
Uh-huh. And because it's killing those motor cells, you lose motor function. Um, for instance, like in your mom's case, like a lot of her, what we say, her facial muscles, her swallowing and her breathing was affected. So it ended up killing those motor neuron cells or those nerve cells in the brain and in the spinal cord that then supply those muscles, right? All our muscles, all our everything is supplied by the nerves. And so if those nerve cells are dead or damaged, obviously your muscles can't work because the communicator for the muscles are the nerves. So we believe it's this toxic buildup of protein. And as you mentioned, there are some medications out there. Um, There's one medication called Rapikava, Radikava, sorry, um, and also the other one that's an uh, older medicine called Relazole, R-I-L-U-Z-O-L-E, neither of which are very effective. Um, Relazole uh, has uh, improved life expectancy by like four months, but it doesn't even necessarily improve your quality of life. Yeah. Uh, and the other medication, some studies have shown it does have some improvement in quality of life, but those studies have been very, some studies have shown some benefits, some other studies have shown they don't. So are, is your team, you're not, like, so stem cell research, we're in this space, this is something I'm sure they're going to apply if there are any kind of breakthroughs they can apply this year, but wouldn't it, would it take an exorbitant amount of... Yeah, no, that's a great question. There was actually a study... Um, like, so there's different phases of study. So phase two study versus phase three study, phase three studies and most of the studies that we have where drugs end up getting approved. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was a, an initial phase two study that showed some benefit with stem cells, but then they, you know, made a more general study that was like a more of a phase three study. It was a phase three study. And unfortunately the phase three trial where they would actually inject stem cells into your spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did not show any benefit at all, unfortunately. Mm. So we're but that doesn't mean that. that stem cells don't work. It just means that we haven't found the right combination and the right stem cells and how they're differentiated to actually help thus far. And to test that, they would just take some some sort of cells that are kind of uh, diagnosed. That have been this, harvested. Harvested, and then they'll inject in this, this stem cell. Uh, yeah, right. but, uh, they'll get the, those harvested stem cells that are harvested in a lab, um, and they will inject them into the spinal fluid of the person who has the disease. In the last 20 years, how far have we come as far as mitigating some symptoms? Like this, this whole, not much, it looks like, right? Yeah, no, unfortunately, not, not much at all. Not, not much at all. Like I said, we have these two medications that may improve your, you know, it's two different things, right? And this was very important for your guys' family that we talked, uh, quantity versus quality of life, right? Mm-hmm. One thing is to increase your quantity of life. But oftentimes that's done at the compromise of quality of life, right? You're alive, but your situation is so poorly that there is no quality. Um, and so like I mentioned, Rylazole, which is the most the, the older medication that improves quantity by four months, four months, but not quality. The other medication, uh, Radicava, does improve in some studies quality of life, but again, not significant, not statistically significantly, but I think most people would say not significantly. So in, in 10, 20 years, and obviously they're doing incredible work, and these researchers, they're trying to figure out something, right? I mean, we're getting breakthroughs in cancer and some other areas. Uh, will, like, I mean, will AI or something like this, which we're investing in quite a bit, will, they, will these things help get to a result? You, you know, I think one thing that AI can really help in, in the short term is diagnosing the disease early, right? right? So with diagnosing the disease early, you can so, for instance, that second medication, the Radicava, or mm-hmm. however everybody anybody wants to pronounce it, but basically that medication, um, 
if it's used earlier, it tends to improve patients' quality of life more so than if it's instituted in a later time of the diagnosis, right? So one of the difficulties with ALS is that it's very difficult to diagnose. We know that patients frequently will have symptoms for one or two years, just mild, subtle symptoms, even like your mom had kind of had what you guys had noticed, but not thought too much of it, which none of us would have, actually. But I think with the possibility of AI being able to earlier diagnose these sorts of diseases, it will help even with some of the medications that we're already using, which are not that effective, may make them more effective because you're doing it earlier. You're using them earlier. Do you dabble uh, directly into the research space at all or no? We do a lot of research into stroke, not so much into the neuromuscular stuff. I think you had mentioned that. And I think it showed that on your website as well. Uh, you're, yes. you're doing incredible work there. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, yeah, we do. We have a lot of trials going on. And just, you know, audience, uh, Dr. Bunsell, we were, we were ready to tape. He was, I have to deal with it. He's dealing with something, right? So he just, you know, and he's just juggling so many. That's, that's what all your employee, you know, your staff had said about this. He's just incredibly intelligent and just pops in whenever, even on his days where he, in hours off, he pops in. <laughs> so oh, yeah. <laughs> you fit in 30 hours of work in a day somehow, uh, is what we, we saw as well. Um, thank you for that. Um, no, what else course, can we do? You. So, okay. Um, People like me, we've just exposed to it for the first time and it shocked us, hurt us, everything. And now we're at a point where I had a, we had another dear family friend, her mother, unfortunately, I was, I wanted her to be on with us actually. She just couldn't make it. Uh, her mom, and she lost her mom in her early sixties, mid sixties and she, incredibly healthy mom, incredibly, she ate right, exercised, did everything right. Uh, my mom was 10 years older, roughly. And you know, had a different lifestyle, right? She had uh, a, a lot of other physical uh, things kind of going on. What? Um, okay, we know that there's not much we can do to prevent it. Uh, what can we do as far as to help and support the work you're doing and your colleagues are doing? Sure. So, you know, um, donating, especially to the ALS Foundation, the ALS Foundation has by and far the best foundation in terms of what this ALS is what we consider a motor neuron disease. And they have really championed all of the research, all of the funding that you know goes into the research. They are a very, very big contributor of. So donating to them is really, really important, whatever they can, um, whatever resources you can, and financial as well as other resources to support them because they're really backing all of the research that's necessary, right? At this point, like you mentioned, there's not many good treatments out there. Everything is just supportive, kind of just improving the person's quality of life where the person unfortunately knows they're going to pass away from the disease. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very important to, you know, further expedite the research to get better treatment options out there. And, you know, you had mentioned, I asked you and Dr. Shavasso where we can kind of, um, kind of direct things because people at a funeral, they want to give something. I said, instead of getting flowers and just giving our family gift, we don't need those kind of things, direct them towards these foundations. In my father's case, we had done it towards Kiwanis. Uh, he's a big member of that community for 50, 60 years or something like that. So we gave quite a bit to them. And in my mom's case, same. So ALS is, I think we have quite a few checks we had gotten to them. And there's a Chicago chapter in particular and I remember I tried to fly back. It was in September. I just couldn't make it. And there was a walk that they do, an ALS walk, I believe. And it, I think it originates in Soldier Field, which at the time I was still a Chicago Bears fan. I'm just hurt by them uh, after decades of support. <laughs> they're, they're hurting me now. Um, but uh, so they, I think that's where it was, right? I mean, so so the ALS yeah. Foundation is the kind of best. That's what everyone keeps coming back with. Yeah, that is the best. That is the best. And they also, um, I know in Chicago, they also have the ice water challenge in the wintertime. Right. where people donate to that as well, where people go into the water 
uh, you know, the freezing cold water because it kind of mimics or kind of is symbolic of how patients with ALS are, right? They're kind of frozen in their body. Mm. Um, oh, wow. And, 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 you know, ALS is a horrible disease in the sense that even if you think about some of the dementias, um, as you lose your mind, right, you don't suffer as much because you don't have that insight anymore that w- of what's going on. Unfortunately, with ALS, especially in the early stages of it, you know exactly what's going on. You're able to fathom and comprehend the fact that you have this incurable disease. Um, and, and that's one of the horrible things about ALS when the diagnosis is made. Um, mm. Interestingly, though, ALS patients have a higher incidence of dementia. In fact, about 15 to 20, 15 to 20% of patients with ALS will go on to develop a specific kind of dementia called frontro, frontotemporal dementia. And... 50% or about half of patients with ALS will actually have cognitive and behavioral difficulties uh, once the diagnosis is made or as the diagnosis happens, as the disease is progressing, which is uh, unfortunate in a way, right? Because oftentimes before those behavioral symptoms can actually manifest first. And so because like they're in a different, per- they have a different personality, they can be more aggressive, more angry, mm. more uh, disconnected to their families where they were not previously, all a manifestation of the disease itself. Um, they tend to alienate their loved ones. And then those patients are left alone, you know, as they endure through this horrible disease. Oh, that's, yeah. Oh, I don't even want to think of that. Um, question for you. So what can we do? So, okay, trauma can bring this around like a car accident or some other yeah, um, so there's some studies that have shown. So the things that they have predicted, uh, the factors they have predicted is, you know, fa- uh, family history, obviously, with that 10% genetic component, age, because we know people who within the eight, 60 to 75% age group tend to have a higher incidence of ALS. And then cigarette smoking is the biggest other risk factor in terms of that's actually the one modifiable risk factor, that there is a slightly higher propensity of patients who develop ALS from smoking, who smoke cigarettes. That being said, they've also found studies uh, consistently that patients who partake and actually, you know, you would say that the more active you are, the healthier you are, right? And we're not yeah. trying to discourage activity. But studies have consistently reproduced these findings that patients who are more active and especially who participate in sports, contact sports where patients have yep. concussions, they tend to have a higher incidence of ALS. So it's I think associated that's what with concussions. Referring to. It's associated. Yes. So I, I saw the athletes had a higher number or higher frequency of diagnosis of this particular and at a younger age, right? Those are the ones that get yes. it in the 30s, 40s, sometimes, they right? Can, yes. <clears throat> no, sometimes, sometimes. Sorry. Sometimes. Uh, but okay, but it's it's direct. It's more related to concussions. So football, it soccer. It is. It is interesting, like concussive or just I think just traumatic sports. Yes. Okay. So anything emanating from the brain. So question for you then: Could this? So my mind, and this is not to. I'm trying to learn here as our audience is here. Uh, my, my mom had open heart surgery three years prior and it was emanating from that kind of area. You know, that when you open a body up like that and then you, it, as it's healing, could some of the neurons stop responding or didn't 100% heal uh, the brain speaking to the breast of the body or can that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we believe it's trauma to the brain or to the spinal cord itself because that's gotcha. where the disease starts. Um, where for your mom for the open heart surgery, um, that would not have impacted those areas. So less likely to have been contributory. But that's a very good question. Yeah, it was it was an odd time because I remember it was my mom's surgery it was supposed to be in May of 2020, in and we went to Cleveland Clinic for it, and it was some of the best in in that space. And they said, "Can you come in March or April because this COVID thing is coming around? We want to get her in and out of the hospital before that hits our hospital because we'll be inundated at that time." And that's exactly so. We moved it up, I think, a month and did it. 
um, to the point where I always, even from New York, because we, because I'm here, and it came from Seattle, the first cases, right? Because uh, that was probably brought. And they told me last minute I was packed, ready to get there. I had to cancel my flight because one of our dear friends, doctor friends, said, "Do not come from that New York area. You could be bringing COVID with you." Uh, so I couldn't even be there for my mom uh, for that surgery, but I was able to visit later because it was just weird. Uh, so all all those things were happening at the same time. But she got another good three years out of it after uh, with that. Boy. What can we do? So you know, these are from the patient perspective, from a clinician's perspective. What would you like to see? Because that, that, that scared me. Like, hey, athletes sometimes get it. Because I, you know, I, there's a lot of us in our family. We had good examples of some people that were healthy and were not healthy because of the exercise or their food intake. We, we all have these in our lives, right? Uh, and right. then I, I went down the one, I made a choice. Okay, I'm going to exercise. So I'm addicted to it a bit. And I, I could eat better. Uh, I eat pretty well Monday through Thursday, then Friday through Sunday is party time. Absolutely. <laughs> With the kids, pizza and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, what else could we be doing as a patient to show up better for a clinician just to be in general? Maybe this is broader than these neurodegenerative diseases, but in general. Um, you know, like living the healthy lifestyle, right? I think inevitably our body is made up of what we eat, right? That's what ultimately provides our energy and provides the the backbones and the minerals for our entire body. So I think all this healthy healthy living, healthy lifestyle, exercising, avoiding toxins, avoiding smoking, cigarette smoking, and doing anything in excess, of course, will be very, very, you know, helpful for the person's general health. And right, even when you develop a neurodegenerative disease like ALS, the healthier you are to start off with, right, the more fit you are to start off with, those patients tend to live longer, tend to do a bit better um, than persons who are chronically ill already, who are immobile already. That's great. Okay. And then, you know, I brought up the DNI play earlier. There's the DNR as well. That's some, these are all personal decisions for the family to, to discuss. We did not have a DNI in place. And that I, as I mentioned early on, and they do not intubate. And, and then they intubated because my mom needed it. We are so blessed to have that. But then you learn as you're in the hospital, my wife and I were just Googling things. Okay. You can only have that in really for about technically up to two weeks roughly before you get some sort of vocal cord damage, pneumonia can set in, all of these, you know, the oxygen and CO2 levels can be a bit off balance and all of that. So that's true. I mean, some of these damages, you know, you can lead down to tracheostomy, but then that can be reversed sometimes, but a lot of times you cannot. Uh, anything that you can help us with? Yeah, there? so, you know, for, for especially in ALS, right, once you get a tracheostomy and, you know, oftentimes some of the studies and some of the research have found that early you start off with even before getting ventilated or tracheostomy, like being placed on a BiPAP at night. Because right, persons who have ALS and these neuromuscular degenerative diseases have difficulty breathing, difficulty with the oxygen exchange because their muscles are weak. So providing them an external support like a CPAP or a BiPAP machine is helpful early on. But as the disease progresses and their muscles, their diaphragm muscles weaken even further, they end up requiring you know more invasive ventilation, which is being intubated, like you mentioned, like your mom was. And then ultimately, like you said, you cannot be intubated for longer. You can't have an endotracheal intubation, which is basically the tube going through your mouth into your trachea for longer than 14 to 21 days, right? So that's mm-hmm. damage, nidus of infection, all, all kinds of reasons. So in those cases, you would then, if the family wants everything done still, to then um, proceed with tracheostomy. And tracheostomy is basically a permanent intubation except it's more comfortable for the patient. The patient's more active. It can be more active, more mobile, and it's not as, like I mentioned, uncomfortable for the person. But those decisions, like you said, are really personal, and they're also very cultural. You know, what's interesting is in the United Mm -hmm. States, patients with ALS, only about 5% of them ultimately get tracheostomy. Oh, interesting. 
yeah, versus in Asian countries like Japan, for instance, about 40% of the patients and their families opt to get tracheostomy. Interesting. So those are very, very personal. You know, every family is different. Every person is different. And, you know, even if patients have DNR or DNI forms, once you're actually in there, right, you know, we can sign a DNI and say we can never, we never want to be intubated or we always want to be intubated, but we oftentimes never appreciate the extent or the situation in which this will actually arise. You know, you can never yeah. predict how things are going to go down. Yeah. And so it's up to the family to make those decisions. And, you know, collectively the family needs to come together because, and they need to come together because they know this person the best, right? Your fam- Nobody knows you better than your family. Right. And your family knows what would you want in this sort of setting. So it's so important to, it is important to have the DNI and DNR, but it's also important for families to come together and say, look, this is what my mom or dad would want ultimately. And that's really what we rely upon. And these are difficult discussions to have. And I would implore anyone listening to have those discussions. And it's very tricky to bring up. Similarly to like, hey, mom, dad, you have these investment investments. You need help with that. If you need help with that, we can help you with that. I help my parents with theirs because I'm in the space. So I know the space. Uh, so this is a similar conversation. My, my, I remember my dad four or five years ago would bring up, hey, let's talk about like, uh, you know, he tried to bring it up and it was very uncomfortable for us. Anything about death and taxes, let's call it the, the, the death portion. It was very difficult. We never really took it that far because I think I was a bit immature to maybe take that conversation. I wish I had, you know. I think it's even immaturity, right? Even as physicians, right? You know, they say you never treat your family, right? Because there's so many yeah. emotions that are involved and emotions that we're not even able to explain. You know, like we can say we have these emotions, but they're so innate and they're so intense and they're so deep for our families that, you know, even as physicians, we have a very, very difficult time, you know, addressing these issues with our family members. And oftentimes for that reason, we just don't. And we run into the same situation that you run, you know, that other people run into who are not even in medicine. Yeah, but Any you other? are absolutely right. You know, having those early, you know, conversations, in-depth conversations, so that, you know, I think one of the hardest things about making these decisions is you don't want to have a regret for you know what your loved one would have wanted. So having those right. decisions, those conversations, I'm sorry, early on, it really does take that burden, and I hate using the word burden as in a negative term, but that burden of you know you those decisions off you because you know you're doing what your loved one would have wanted and ultimately right. that's the most important thing yeah yeah um god bless you and your team for everything you, you just showed up in such a wonderful way because this is so many things that we are learning for the first time right and then are we have all these family members popping in asking questions we didn't know how to direct those questions uh but your team was just so empathetic that's the perfect word my wife always talks about bedside manners right uh, with a new york presbyterian and that's a big issue for them at their hospital in a good way like meaning they they push for it and they are very they earn very high marks in their bedside manners we saw that in you and just a few others dr Schwarzer was retired popped in every day to see my every mom. single day and i mean he was so devoted and dedicated and, and absolutely and and that's what you get in a i, I my Kudos to, I know Rockford was voted in a different, in a list at one time, like one of not so top cities to live in <laughs> and when I was growing up there, meaning we didn't have a professional sports team like that. We had, you know, the minor leagues, the minor teams or whatever. So they look at that, that comes into the equation versus Chicago has the teams and all that, you know, we were close to Chicago, but the wonderful thing of these smaller communities, I think 150, 170,000 people, 150,000 people in Rockford, right? The town I grew up in, I was in there up until my twenties. I, I, I 
Everyone knew everyone. So the, there's another, uh, I forget her name, the female doctor that was that met with us prior to you. Uh, the first day we arrived, I forget her name. She was uh, Dr. Roy. Yes, Dr. Dr. Roy. Roy. Dr. Barthi Roy, yes. Absolutely She's phenomenal. incredible. Incredible. And, you know, they had met my mom and, her, and my Masi had met her at some wedding or something just two months prior or something. And she was so incredibly just kind to us. And I didn't know, and I think we met you for the first time during this whole process. You had met my parents, you said. Yeah, you know what's interesting is, so I was in Ohio for a little bit of time, and there was a physician there, Dr. Goyle. Um, He had lived in Rockford, and he knew your family because you guys were all from Punjab. Um, And so he had told me, I told him, you know, I'm moving to Rockford, and he told me, you have to meet this family, the pressures. He goes, they're great, they're excellent, Um, just spoke, you know, raved about your parents and you guys. Um, and so there was like a, I want to say it was like a Diwali festival in like 20 and me and my wife would always be wondering, where are they? Like, we don't see, you know, you know, we don't know how to get a hold of them because we didn't know that many people when we first moved right. here, we had moved here in 2018 and, uh, we were happy to be behind just right. Uh, they were behind us. We were right in front of them, um, at, at the Diwali festival. And I think doctor, I think one of an, another person had told us this is the pressure of their Punjabi too. And I remember at that point meeting your mom and your dad, and they were just the sweetest people. Your mom was smiling. Your mom was so nice. She spoke to us in Punjabi. My Punjabi sucks, so I was embarrassed to talk back to her in Punjabi. So yeah, um, she's just so loving. And your dad, similarly, he was just like you could just tell he was an awesome dad, and you know, just a great person. Um, they were so welcoming to us there. And, you know, I remember that very, you know, I still have that memory in my mind. I appreciate you having that memory because he was, he, he used to beat our ass when we were young. I, I'll get it. You know, cause we, he wanted <laughs> us to grow up and do right, do well in school and all this. He did was, not like, seem like that kind of no, person when no, I saw you know, you know such a loving guy. Yes. He was yes. amazing because as soon as we got married and he knew that, okay, these guys are doing okay. They're right. They're good. Uh, and I think he just became, then he started saying, I love you on the phone with it. it made me uncomfortable for a while. <laughs> and when my wife came into the family and it was good. Listen to those. I'll say one parting word to everyone here. Uh, for the last five, six years of my parents' lives, uh, I lost them within 20 months of each other. I, My wife and I, we live on the East Coast in New York City, New Jersey then, and then they were always in the Rockford area. Uh, we'd, we'd visit them, we'd come to see them, and then we'd come to see them without family members because we could spend more time with them because otherwise we would bond with our cousins, we'd be off drinking whiskey or scotch or something, and then you know, all the parents would hang out, kids would hang out, whatever. We would go specifically with us four, my two boys and my wife and I, just to hang out with my parents directly, and then we would FaceTime three, four times a week for 40, 50 minutes at a time. We're all busy. It was difficult, but we did that because someday was going to come that I will never get to do that again, and that day is... It's, it's here now. Um, so you miss those kind of things. Uh, sorry, I lose it a little bit all the time. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, I'll t- in a funny way, I was a Bears fan forever. My parents knew this about me. And I went on fit because now I'm against the Bears. And, and ironically, they just beat the shitty-ass Detroit Lions who, are, who have a good record, but we all know what's, how that's going to end. Um, <laughs> right? They just beat them today right now, uh, about 10 minutes ago. And I was going on eBay and Facebook to sell off my bears ass. So I have 30 of them and I don't want them anymore. And my son wants to make money doing it. So I'm letting him do that. We went on Facebook and I saw my mom's Facebook account and it led to her Instagram account. And I wrote a nice little note to both of them there and I lost it. And this is four months after my mom passed, you know, it just, it hits you. So spend as much time if you have, if you can, uh, spend as much time with your parents as you, as you absolutely can, because someday you won't be able to. Right, and I wanted that message to come across, yeah. and it hurts like hell. Sometimes you want to like she Thanksgiving, they were always with us, and we'd have like cook up a storm, and and this is the first one I had without her, and it just it's it's tough. Uh, so, 
any other things we can do? Bring it back to you, Dr. Bunsel. Oh, You've sure. been incredible. Um, show up better. We want to live fulfilling. Like we have a lot of executives and uh, you know, and then founders, even you know, people who invest in other companies uh, or they're you know, and they invest in public and private markets. That's kind of what I always talk about. I can't stop talking about it. I know people tell me uh, so. How can we show up better in life? Are there other things we can do beyond the physical and these other things that can we that we can do? Sometimes we overexert our memories. What can we do? Like dementia can set in. I know in a lot of older patients, like you meant, you briefly touched upon it. What can we do to keep our brains sharp to maybe offset some of these things? Yeah, you know, especially you know, dementias, of course, tends to be a disease of the elderly, right? So mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, patients once they retire persons, people, humans, once they retire, you know, they don't stimulate their minds as much. And one thing we know for dementia is that the more you stimulate the mind, the more you keep your mind active, the less your chances of developing dementia. And even if you do develop dementia, the less, the slower the disease will progress, right? So even doing simple things like word puzzles, anything that you can do to stimulate your mind, Mm. Sudoku, like Wordle, all of those things are very, very helpful. They seem so trivial at the time, but they're so, so helpful in, you know, preventing dementia and also prolong you know preventing it from progressing very quickly once you develop it so those that's very very important and again it a lot of it goes back to healthy eating and a healthy lifestyle from the get-go yeah and even one other thing to add to that i know some parents won't want to wear hearing aids even when they need them so that when they lose that ability so get them on those we got my dad on that he my dad was about nine years older than my mom he's 84 he made it too uh, and he, I mean, he needed it, but he didn't want to wear it because it ruined his street cred, apparently. Um, so, but we got him on it because once you start, if you don't listen in a conversation, you don't get that cognitive stimulation. Exactly. Then, That's right? an excellent freaking point. That's an excellent point. Not only that, they lose that, you know, they don't have that cognitive stimulation first and foremost. And then you end up thinking they're demented half the time because they're not hearing what you're saying. They're, and then you're thinking they're forgetting what they, you've told them in the past. And quite frankly, they just never heard you in the first place. <laughs> any other parting notes that we no, should have here no i don't i mean your family was incredible i mean your family is a model for all of us absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we absolutely. say that about you as well um oh, and now you. that i know we usually drink whiskey on here you don't drink whiskey but now that i know that your wife does i will say wife's all over it i love all it right. i love it okay thank you so much dr Bunsel. this has been thank phenomenal. you so much my pleasure thank you this was an honor for me i appreciate it thank you thanks dr Bunsel.